0: the only thing better than the reader is the story. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. It's Three disciples caught up in a sense of worship and what's happening while they go up that mountain to be alone with Jesus is very similar to what's happening, we hope, every time we gather as a congregation to worship. And we try to take some things from episodes like this and say, how do we use that to architect what we're trying to do in worship when we get together? When they're up the mountain with Jesus, He is transfigured before them. He literally changes shape. His face takes on a different appearance. The way some translate it is, He pulls back a little bit of His human nature so they can see more clearly the divinity that is in Him. This is significant, isn't it? This is what we hope happens when we worship. We hope we come in and realize that it is not just the Son of Man that we're worshiping, but the Son of God who is also the Son of Man. And when Christ is changed before our eyes, we begin to worship Him more sincerely. Yes? About halfway through this service... Two people appear out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah. I don't know whether they're holograms or whether they're actually there, but they appear in all of their splendor. They're like worship leaders in a sense. And they anchor what is happening in the present moment to what has come thousands of years before. So the disciples know that this is not just a moment out of the blue. This is an encounter with the living God that is rooted deep in Israel's history. And then just as they're getting ready to stay there, a cloud descends. This is probably the cloud that led them through the wilderness a couple thousand years ago. And the disciples fall over on their face. Now they're beginning to change. And they hear a voice, which I hope you hear every time we worship. The voice says, this is my beloved son, speaking of Christ. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then when they open their eyes, they notice that Jesus is standing alone. It's like two worship leaders have come in to help the disciples understand who Jesus was. And just as they were ready to go over frontward, the worship leaders disappeared so that the one and only is standing before them. And then they hear the voice, This is my Son. Listen to Him. As I said, I hope you hear that every Sunday that we meet. I hope you can take your eyes off of personalities. And as you leave every Sunday, leave with that voice in your head, what did the Son of God say to me today? Have I heard Him? As is true in every worship service, they don't want to leave. They want to stay there. Peter says, let's build three little shacks. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's sort of like the Hall of Fame, Jesus, and you're in it. But he did not know what he was saying. For the purpose of worship is never just to pull people in it is always to send them out. And so every Sunday that we worship here, I hope you will get a sense that worship has pulled you in and fixed your attention on Jesus alone, that you've heard His voice, and right when you want to stay, I hope you get sent out. if we were to ask the disciples when it was they were the most formed spiritually, when were your best moments, undoubtedly, this would be one of them. They would say, man, and it was only three of them, man, that day that Jesus pulled us up the mountain and we saw things nobody else saw and we heard things that nobody else heard, that was clearly one of the highlights. That moment shaped me they would be right. What they would miss, perhaps, is that they are just as shaped by the people they meet afterwards. You'll be tempted to say, clearly in my week, the seven days, the most formative moment for me is when I pull away from all the routine and the deadlines and I get to focus on Jesus, that energizes me, I'm with people I know and love. And then I have to leave the sanctuary and go back to the grind. And you'll be tempted to think that the most significant moment in your week spiritually is that moment when you withdraw like the disciples go up to the mountain and worship God. You'll say, that's it, that's where I'm really beginning to change what you might miss is the people that you run into, after you leave the sanctuary, will shape you too. A couple of thoughts that will help us maybe frame this. One is that our souls are not shaped only by things we invite into our lives. We are not captain of our souls, people. There are some things that we can script into our lives and we can say, I want to add this component and that component and then I will grow spiritually because of these components. But the soul is a social entity. It is always scanning to find out what is happening. The soul is being formed and shaped by things that we have not even processed cognitively yet. Are you still with me? I know where I'm going anyway. so as long as you keep dividing your life into things you plan and things you didn't plan into things that are good and things that are bad then you will not be able to get on with your life because your life is comprised of both things are you with me now? so that's the first thing you are shaped not simply by the people you bring into your life, but by other people that you don't bring into your life. But they end up there anyway. Which leads to the second framing idea. True community, then, is the people around me who were wanted and unwanted. Your spiritual community includes people that are in your small group. But it also includes people that are on your hit list. It includes people who affirm you but it also includes people who frustrate you. See, some of the reason we never find true community is because we are looking for something that doesn't exist, people. We are looking for this idealistic small group where everyone shares the same ideas and the same convictions and the only differences we have are on our favorite teams. But we all hate Tom Brady. (laughs) You see what I mean? Our differences seldom get larger than that because when they do, we immediately exclude that person or at least marginalize them from our community because we are still dividing our lives into people we want and people we don't, into people that are good for us and they're helping us grow, into those that frustrate us and keep us from growing. And what I'm telling you is, both of them belong in your life. You see, part of being fallen. is not only that you withdraw from community, but it is also, when you re-engage in community, it is always the community you want. And you have a flawed view of community. It's a large version of yourself. Swallow hard. I love you guys. And if you're mad at me right now, I'm in your community. <laughs> we, uh, when I was a kid, we'd play backyard football, and we'd pull into a huddle, And we'd make our plan and then send everybody up to the line. And the second you got up to the line, nobody on the other side of the line cooperated with our huddle. (laughs) Ever. They never did what they're supposed to do. They were faster than we thought. They blocked harder than we thought. And when they hit us, they hit us harder than we thought. We were looking out the ear hole of our little helmets by the time they were done with us. This is what we do. We withdraw into a worship service that is to us something like a holy huddle. And we talk about the world as if they were somebody else. And then we break huddle and we go out into the world. And nobody does what they're supposed to do when we were in worship. And we keep telling ourselves once we manage these people and get them to do what they are supposed to do, then we will grow. And what I'm telling you is you can't grow without them. So... Uh, who are these people that you meet? Well, as the disciples come down from the mountain, they run into a series of, of of people which remind me of the people that are in our lives. Let me walk you through. If you have Luke nine open, let me walk you through this passage. They, they come down from the mountain for out of the worship sanctuary in Luke 9.36, I think it is. And, and when they come down, a man with a demonic boy meets them at the base. And he says to them, Teacher, I beg you to take mercy on my son. A spirit seizes him And it throws him to the ground, and it throws him into convulsions. It's destroying the boy, he says. It's destroying the family around the boy. And then he says something really haunting. He says, I begged your disciples to cure him, but they could not. The first person I'll run into is the needy. You will leave the sanctuary and run into people that are needy. There is no fixing them. You can't cure them, and you'll want to. These are people whose lives are chaotic, they're frenetic. There seems to be a downward pull about their whole lives. They're disheveled. They're dysfunctional. And you will try to do one of two things. I've tried both. One is you will try to fix them. And if you can't, then two, you will try to explain them away. The way that you fix them is you give them advice, but it's always at a distance. You've processed poverty, you've processed shame and addiction and and all of the dysfunction in the marrying community and you say to yourself, I know how this works. Here's what you do if that's happening to you. But you see, the closer you get to the boy, the more you realize your answers are wrong. You realize, listen to me, there is an answer. You can't give up on the answer. It's just not the slick advice that you are used to giving. Because the tendency is to say, I know how to fix that. Here's what you do. And if you follow my advice and it works well. If it doesn't work, I've done all that I know to do. And then we disengage and get back to our lives. Yes? And when that doesn't work, you will try to explain it away. You will say, I understand this problem. Academic communities are famous for this because in academic communities, thoughts are like actions. (laughs) You can get in a really smart group of people, have deep thoughts and think you've actually done something. And I mean, listen, I love deep thoughts as well as anyone, but the object in this world is not simply to understand the world, it is to help change it. And that's another level beyond understanding. So we explain it away when we give it answers that summarize it and distill it into simple Proverbs. Or worse yet, we say, You know, there really isn't that much wrong with his life. That's just an alternative lifestyle. And perhaps he's chosen that. I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to say one life is better than another life. This is worse. Now, there is no cure because there is never a disease. Yes? If you will stay with these people, they will teach us patience. They will teach us how to hold on to people that we cannot fix. I have found that a lot of my compassion for the poor or for the addicted or for the fatherless and those that are burdened with shame is not really compassion at all. It's an addiction to short answers. I like short answers. I don't like hard problems. And the harder the problem, the sooner I want to disengage. And these people will teach me how to hold on to something I cannot fix. And so I hear Jesus' voice. He says, Bring the boy to me. Bring me your son. And I know in a moment what my calling is with the needy. It is to bring them to Jesus so that he may heal them. He may rebuke that evil and he may give them back to their families. The needy will wear us out if we don't have any boundaries but they can never help us if we are always explaining them away yes we got to move on I'll hurry the second person that they run into is from their own company it's one of the disciples while they are traveling along the way They start having a dispute amongst themselves as to who will be the greatest. This is remarkable, isn't it? Jesus is talking about going to the cross and dying for the world. And a few feet back, our disciples um, having a contest over which one of them is the greatest. Why not? He did say there would be a kingdom. You will need levels of leadership to be sure. But what I can't understand is how anyone who is locked into a debate over who is the greatest will ever take a knee and recommend someone else who would do this who would argue about greatness and say you know come to think of it you're the man you don't argue about this if you think the other guy is the man the second person you'll run into is your competitor You will run into someone who is good at something you're good at, or they want something you also want, and your temptation will be to become their rival. You might be fooled into thinking that success and happiness comes in limited quantities. And so the more someone else has, the less there is for anyone else to enjoy. But Listen to me. If we will learn to walk alongside of our competitors, they will teach us the opposite. Success does not come in limited quantities. The more I give away of it, the more of it I actually have. This is the true nature of power too. The more I disempower myself and give it to the people around me, the more power I actually have. We will not learn this unless there are competitors in our lives. So look around you. Who are the people who are good at what you're good at? who are the ones getting more credit than you think they deserve? Who's doing something that you're also doing, but they're getting more attention than you're getting? And what is the spirit that you find rising up within you while you think about these things? This knows no boundaries. It happens to intellectuals. It happens to workers in factories. It happens to families when they compare children. I'm glad yours are succeeding. Now let's talk about mine. It happens between marriages, it happens between churches, it happens between personalities. Uh, now, yeah, it was a while ago. I was having this conversation with God. I thought, I'm working too hard, and someone else is getting it too easy, and they're getting too much attention. I paced and paced and paced you guys and prayed and prayed about this and finally distilled a few hours of prayer into a single sentence, which I wrote in chicken scratch and slapped it on my wall. It is still there. It says, Steve, you cannot argue about who is the greatest without ignoring who is the head. Christ is the head. There is no greatest. We are all nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Your competitor will teach you how to die. What I recommend is that you begin to pray fanatically that your competition succeeds overwhelmingly and you'll drive a stake into the heart of your competition. Pray that the person who is getting more credit than you gets even more. And then take a step back in line and use your position to elevate that person with all that you have. And what you lose in profile, you will gain in spirituality. Are you still with me? Because it's pretty quiet. Walking a bit further on, a disciple walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, we saw a person who was casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. The third person you'll meet the outlier. An outlier is someone who is not part of your group. They're not wrong. They're not flawed. They just don't belong to your posse. And they're doing something that you are also doing, or at least that you believe in, but the outlier is doing it wrong. Jesus... We saw people worshiping, but they were not worshiping like we worship, so we told them to stop. Jesus, we saw people who were talking about outreach, but they were not talking about our interests, and so we told them to stop. Jesus, we saw young couples who were trying to raise their kids, but they were doing it wrong. And so we told them to stop. Jesus, we heard somebody preaching, but He wasn't preaching like they preach in our church. Until so we told them to stop. The verb, we told them to stop, is imperfect. It means that this wasn't a one-time statement. It means... They were arguing about this. Jesus, He kept doing it. And so we kept telling Him, Stop it! And He kept doing it. And so we kept telling Him, Stop it! Jesus, I wish You would go over there and make the matter clear. And what does Jesus say to you? If they're not against you, they're for you. You need people in your life who don't do things the way you do it. They are your allies. Spiritual formation is not a journey into sameness but into diversity. You need people who are different from you and you need them to stay different without softening the edges. Some years ago I battled with this theologically. I wasn't worried about the stupid little arguments about the style of worship. I was worried about theology. And I had a meltdown one day when the Lord said to me, you need the Catholics and you need the Pentecostals. You need the Reformed people in your life. Quit building defenses and firewalls against somebody else's case. Translated, he said, Shut up and listen. I wrote a prayer at the end of that wrestling match. Oh God, when I am most certain I am right, remind me that one may think otherwise and still not be wrong. Teach me to listen without having to embrace, to empathize without having to become, to respect without having to answer. Teach me inside of my safe and sanitary definitions to leave room for other possibilities, to eat with those whose heart is as mine, but whose mind is of another persuasion. Help me to see that men are more than the sum of their beliefs. And then help me to embrace the part of them that embraces the simple Jesus. Show me that I am not the kingdom of God. Rather, I belong to the kingdom of God. And what little of the kingdom I possess borders a part of the kingdom that is possessed by another of a different mind. For even you have said, I have sheep that are not of this pasture. Thank You for sending people and events into my life which keep pulling up my firmly grounded corners. These things teach me that You are not the sole possession of any man. That You are more than the sum of my convictions. That there really is a wideness in Your mercy. And that smart as I think I am, there are things about You I cannot know. Unless someone from another stripe stoops to show me. For even when I was sure I was right, I have been wrong. All right, I'm quitting. That's as far as we're going. Would you bow your heads? There does not need to be much of a persuasion in this message, people. These are the very people, the very people that every religion in the world tries to avoid. They all try to manage them because nobody likes them. And I'm telling you this morning, they are in your community. Embrace them. Let them teach you something. Humble yourself. Pray for them. Help them succeed. And let them remain who they are.